So I've been doing some reading lately about how we adjust our faith journey uh, through the course of our lives. And the kitsch term for that is deconstruction. But I've been doing some reading, um, and I think that it is such a fascinating, fascinating topic that we'll take a few weeks to talk a little bit about how our faith, um, as we go through the phases of our life, uh, the circumstances of our life, um, all those type of things have an effect upon our faith. And so what I want to do for the next several weeks is just talk a little bit about faith as a process that we go through. And as we go through this process, we change, obviously. We're not the same person as we were in uh, previous years. And as we change, our perspective often changes on certain things. And it'll become clear what I'm talking about. The title that I put on this particular study is Forged in Fire. And it comes out of a passage that I've always loved in First Peter. So um, if we take a look at, I guess, the introduction of what I'd like to cover over the next few weeks is a key idea. Faith is always in process, and we are always going through different cycles of deconstruction and reconstruction and, and torquing uh, our, and tweeting our, uh, our belief systems. And that seems to be implied in a key scripture verse that I want to read for you this evening. It's in the epistle of First Peter. And um, if you know anything about this epistle, uh, it is written to a bunch of scattered Jews. Um, we could call them diaspora, but it begins in chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So as we think about the um, the Jewish diaspora, here even in the first century, we see that many had been scattered. Uh, some of them had been undergoing persecution. And what happens is as they have made their way into various parts of Asia Minor, um, there was a need for Peter to write about their faith. And so in verse 3 of chapter 1, uh, Peter writes this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And this becomes the setup for this key verse. In verse 7 it says this, trials or suffering uh, or grief, ha these have come so that your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So take a look at that imagery there, uh, that we all kind of go through the refiner's fire in our faith. And as we do so, uh, there are certain things that 
are reshaped. There are certain things that uh, we begin to look at differently. And uh, like I said, a popular term for that is deconstruction. But the refiner's fire is this idea of being forged and molded and shaped uh, into what God wants us to become as his followers. And um, I shared on Sunday morning a couple weeks ago that when we think about faith, uh, we often go through different stages from simplicity to complexity, perplexity. And then finally, we have an element of harmony within us only to find that when there is something else that comes up in our life, we find ourselves again going back through that same cycle again. So it kind of looks like this here. I put this up on the PowerPoint on Sunday morning that uh, we, you know, we we like things simple. Uh, we like things to be good or bad, right or wrong, but life is too complex for that. And so what we find is that as we find that life is more complex, uh, we begin to question some of the simplistic answers that possibly have been handed to us uh, from religious authorities or from parents or teachers or whatever it may be. And then even as we go through that, what we find is that we still have elements of perplexity where uh, we have honest but humble doubting about certain things. And then we figure we have to kind of restructure our faith to also um, incorporate some of the new things that we've seen or learned. And then for at least a, a little while, we find kind of harmony or peace within that. And what we do find, though, is life is complex enough that um, we will go through these stages again and again. Um, and the key here in harmony is when we are in doubt about certain things, it's best to always uh, choose a hermeneutic of love. That is, interpret the world through the love lens. And we don't necessarily need certainty because what we find is uh, Jesus gives to us that uh, insight that as we love God, we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. So I don't know if you have any questions on kind of this graphic that I put up here, but um, any any thoughts on that? Have you ever experienced kind of going through this cycle a little bit? Yeah, but I've also seen people who just seem stuck. Mm -hmm. they, they believe what's being tossed out at them. <laughs> it's, they don't it, question it. It's easy, I think, to get stuck in simplicity uh, because certain authority figures uh, are so convincing. But at the same time, when real life brings in complex questions, uh, they don't want to be questioned on some of these things here. And they sometimes get stuck in the simplistic stage. Others uh, sometimes get stuck in the complexity stage, thinking that, thinking that if I if I study hard enough, if I research hard enough, I will be able to answer some of these complex questions, only to find there's always something more to learn. And that is when complexity sometimes turns uh, 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 turns into perplexity. And it is here a lot of times where people will walk away from their faith is in this perplexity stage uh, because they'll go, well, I know it's not this simple. 
Um, and I know that uh, there are some answers, but it's gotten so complex that I, I just throw my hands up and I'm just going to walk away. But usually some of that happens when it is also accompanied by some type of hurt. Now, in the first Peter passage, we see that uh, the audience has gone through various trials and it's brought grief upon them. And uh, sometimes what happens is it's easy um, to turn and go back to that which is easier or more simplistic. The whole book of Hebrews is like that. Uh, life has gotten very difficult for the readers, and they're tempted to stop following Christ and go back into uh, more of a, uh, a religion of Judaism before Christ. And that's a whole book of Hebrews. There's a little bit of suggestion of that threat here in First Peter as well. But um, I think here what we'll find is as we continue to move around, we pretty much know a lot of times when uh, we get up to a situation, what love looks like, even if we're perplexed, even if it's something that we can't figure out. Usually the harmony comes in the fact that we intuitively know, I guess, what love looks like. And if I have to redefine what love is, then what I might be doing is trying to redefine it so that I can sit in one of these other cycles um, that uh, we find ourselves in with faith. Let me go back and, and finish that previous slide. So let me give you a, a disclaimer for a second. So deconstruction, I'm just using that as kind of the popular title as it is here in the 21st century is not something that we choose for ourselves. It's not like I wanna dismantle my faith. It's something that has been done in the course of our life that begins this process uh, because we can't figure it out. And usually some of those things are, if God is a God of love, why did he dot, 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 you know? Why did uh, all this happen to me? And why did I lose my job? Or why did I lose a loved one? Or, um, you know, why have I been rejected? It, it could be a number of things. Um, deconstruction is not necessarily something that someone sits down and chooses to do. It's just a natural reaction to uh, the difficulties of life. So if we can kind of keep that in our mind, then one of the things that we can do is when people are questioning certain things about their faith, um, the worst answer is, well, you need to have more faith. Well, that's the problem, is I'm struggling with my faith. Uh, it's okay to struggle with it, and it's okay to ask uh, questions and uh, seek out answers, and giving people the room and the freedom to be able to do that is is more beneficial to them than trying to shut those questions down. Does that make sense? Okay, all right. Okay, so one of the things that I've been noticing in the scripture is the theme of fire. So if, we're, if our faith is forged in fire from the first Peter passage, are there some complementary type passages of scripture that kind of uses the same thing? Well, in Isaiah chapter 50, Isaiah chapter 50, Israel is 
uh, being contrasted in her sin with uh, what is known as the servant of the Lord. That's a theme that's in that part of Isaiah and his obedience. But what's interesting is the imagery that is used. If you look at Isaiah chapter 50, and if you come down to verse 10, it says this, who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? And then it uses this theme of darkness and fire. Let him who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. But, contrast, but now all you who uh, light fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches, go walk in the light of your fires and of the torches that you have set ablaze. This is what you shall receive from my hand. You will lie down in torment. It will drive you crazy because as you light your own fire and you cannot uh, come up with absolute um, rock solid answers to some of the questions that we have in life, then uh, we, we are tormented by the fact that we have these elements of I'm going to build my own fire. I'm going to find my own way. But we find them only as kind of like shadows on the wall. How many of you are familiar with Plato's uh, parable of the cave? Is, have any of you heard that parable? Okay, so let me sh let me show you a graphic. I'm going to come back to the slide. So here, is Plato, uh, many many years ago, um, used this analogy about illumination. So remember that often in theological circles. We often use terms like revelation, inspiration, illumination. In other words, God reveals himself. He inspires writers to write what they have written. And God helps us through illumination to see what it means. Well, in this uh, cave analogy, there is, uh, let me go back and it's, you'll see it in writing. Uh, in this cave analogy, Plato says that we are like a company of dreary figures that are bound in chains in a cave, and we cannot figure out what's going on. All we, all we can do is look straight ahead, and as these prisoners are chained, they see the cave wall, but they see shadows on the wall that is projected onto the wall by people that are passing in front of a fire that is in back of them. Uh, they can't imagine any other reality because they, that's all that they have ever experienced is these shadows on the wall. Well, one day a prisoner gets free enough that he is able to turn around and look and he sees a campfire that's providing the light behind him. So this is a man-made light, but it's better than nothing than sitting in the darkness. Now, the campfire uh, will, uh, is what illuminates the shadows on the wall, but it's not the real light that will bring about illumination. And so at one point, one of the prisoners uh, is taken out of the cave, and as he's taken out of the cave, it's his first true glimpse of sunlight. And as he looks out, he sees a whole world of different colors 
that he had never been able to see before. So this analogy has been used often uh, in various ways of talking about how many times what we see in front of us is simply shadows um, and that there still awaits for us a bigger revelation and illumination as we continue to uh, struggle and walk through this world and learn through the process. I find it interesting that in the New Testament, uh, one of the things I already mentioned, the book of Hebrews, that the author, whom we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but one of the themes that he uses as he talks about not turning back, and to use this parable, don't go back down into the cave once you've gotten back, once you've gotten up to the top and you've seen the sunlight, don't go back. And so he says, our God is a consuming fire. We normally, um, we normally associate that with judgment. But if you look in chapter 12, I think what you're, uh, what we see is God is this fire that produces illumination for people. Don't turn your back on it, but continues to move toward that light. And of course, Jesus used the idea of light as well. Uh, John chapter one, verse nine, Jesus is the true light from light who shines on all humanity. So this idea is that as we go through life, we have some uh, some insights, but a lot of times we don't know how to put things together. We kind of sit in the darkness like in this cave. And sometimes we look at the shadows that are projected on the wall and they're satisfactory, but it's not the true light that will come from above uh, as you move out from the cave and up toward where the sun is shining. So there's a whole there's a whole bunch that's written on this parable by uh, Plato. Um, and, but I thought it was apropos that in our faith journey, many times what we find is that we are satisfied sometimes with the shadows on the wall until something happens. And when something happens, then all of a sudden we begin to ask, okay, the, these simplistic perspectives are not satisfactory. I have to look deeper into this. And that's when you start to move into that complexity and even perplexity stage. So having said that, one of the things that has often happened is as people meet up with some of the uh, tragedies and trials and things that Peter is talking about in First Peter, they shut down. And when they shut down, their faith becomes more of an agitation than it does a comfort to them. And so what sometimes will happen is there is an element of unbelief that can occur. And sometimes we'll find that an entire generation will be um, disenchanted with the faith that they have been given. And um, it can be characterized as an age of unbelief. So if you go into the scripture, one of the things that you'll find is the existence of God is assumed in the Old and New Testament. Um, there's not a there's not a, a, any any a, a massive amount of material 
that suggests that there were people that were atheists. Um, they just assumed the um, beliefs of their day. And as they believed in that, even if they couldn't figure it out, uh, they understood that there was some element of the divine that uh, was a part of their life. If you remember in Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul goes into Athens on his missionary journey. And as he goes into Athens, he sees all of these altars and names of gods are on all of these altars. But he notices that one of these altars is, is titled to an unknown God. In other words, in case we missed some of the gods, we're going to put up an altar to the unknown God, the unknowable God. So Paul uh, begins to quote some of their own authors in Acts chapter 17. And then um, it is this, this quote that he has in Acts 17 that is very apropos to kind of the worldview of of the day, and that is in him, God, we live and move and have our being. So there's this ethos in the Old and New Testament that there are gods that control uh, life here on earth. Might not necessarily be the God of Israel that's being believed in, but a pantheon of gods that controls uh, the lives of human beings. Then what we find is that as as civilizations continue to develop, we are introduced to different um, different perspectives, as we find uh, with the writings of Friedrich Nietzsche. Nietzsche pub published a parable, um, sort of like Plato did, to unveil certain thing and things, and the parable is called the Madman. And what he said in this parable is that there was an age that is coming that is going to be like a raging inferno because unbelief is something that's going to characterize the age. So the famous proclamation, God is dead, uh, is often attributed to Nietzsche. However, in this parable, the madman, he is the madman. And he is the one that holds various viewpoints and opinions that are far removed from the common perspective of his day. And what he proclaims God is dead, what he is saying is not that God doesn't exist, but that what he observed is that the faith of people who called themselves believers, uh, they didn't have a belief in God that was part of the organizing part of their life. It didn't shape. In other words, God is dead was a way of saying that you act as if God doesn't exist. And, and he made this prediction that eventually this would become the organizing principle of European civilization. And he perceived that the Christian um, people of that day uh, lived as if God did not exist. And he feared that life in a world that abandoned God would eventually become petty and pointless. And he does have a point there, because when you live without the light of God, then you have to make up your own purposes. Uh, and that's why Nietzsche is often associated with nihilism. 
the inability to have purpose, the inability uh, to have uh, a perspective that gives life uh, meaning and, and joy. So he talks a, a lot about how the last man is, is shaped by utilitarianism. Uh, in other words, all he sees is what is this good for in terms of making money, um, those type of things. And, and instead, he is suggesting through this parable that we have lost adventure, exploration, art, and education. And that people tend not to be interested in those things unless they have a corporate sponsor that makes it worth their while uh, to explore. So it's a, another fascinating read. So we're dipping our toes into philosophy a little bit here, but it makes a point. And the point is we all go through changes. Are we willing to go through those changes? Are we willing to go through the different cycles that come upon us as they are thrust upon us? So that's what we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks. And um, I want to begin with the big question, okay? And the big question is, is it possible to hold on to Christian faith in an age of unbelief? So that's one of the things that we'll try to, um, to tackle a little bit. There's all kinds of good material out there now uh, that can be used. One of the, as you know, one of my favorite authors is Brian McLaren. He, his latest book is called Do I Stay Christian? And in the book, he uh, he's, he divides half the book into yes and half the book into no and gives reasons for both sides, depending upon, um, you know, what we've experienced and what we're facing in our own life. So if you want a good read, and I'll probably be uh, quoting from this a little bit here and there. So the world of deconstruction is a term to describe a crisis of faith that often leads to a reevaluation of Christianity. Um, for some, it leads to an abandonment of it. But for most people, what they uh, what they do is they begin to see that their faith has to make adjustments. And um, one of the things that people often strive for, and it will always lead them down a path of disillusionment, is certitude. The pursuit of being certain is going to lead you down a path of unanswered questions because it's too, too complex. And instead of leaning into faith and trusting that God has uh, all that within his plan and purpose, then there are questions sometimes. And as, uh, as I put here uh, in the uh, slide, sometimes people live within panic rooms of certitude. Uh, and I think that's what often turns religion bad. Um, it breeds um, the type of fundamentalism, extremism, that often will hurt other people in the process. So instead of our faith being something that is attractive, something that is appealing, uh, then it can become something that is uh reviled. Uh, and so you've all met people like that, depending upon their experience within the church. And since we are an LGBTQ affirming church, um, one of the things that we realize that a lot of people within the LGBTQ community 
have been hurt by the church uh, because of their faith being so certain that they got it right on a particular um, interpretation of a few handful of passages that um, that then that turns that turns uh, very destructive and it can uh, lead people sometimes to just walk away from the church. Not that they give up their spirituality, but they don't see the church as a trustworthy place to ask honest questions. So any thoughts there that you have? Any comments, questions? Okay, so what usually will spark um, a, a deconstruction is an uh-oh moment. And an uh-oh moment is a moment where you have a moment of clarity that uh, does not match up well with the faith that you carry or that you've been taught. The way Pete Enns puts it in his book, The Sin of Certainty, is most Christians, I'd be willing to bet, sooner or later, all Christians have unexpected uh-oh moments that threaten familiar ways of believing and thinking about God, moments that show up uninvited without a chance to prepare for what's coming and run for cover. So a lot of times people just, you know, la, 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 see nothing, hear nothing, say nothing, and that type of thing. But uh-oh moments capture our attention. And when they capture our attention, one of the things that sometimes happens is no matter how far we try to run away from those questions, they're always in the back of our mind. And so it's better to ask the question and converse with the question and begin to um, realize that there's often many different perspectives. Um, I've said this a number of times that in a world where Protestant Christianity has over 40,000 denominations, 40,000. Um, and all of them think that they have the right interpretation. Okay, every one of them thinks we got it right. Um, it is something that it will often um, create uh, uh, barriers to look at things honestly, rather than trying to reinforce what you already believe. And I think that's sometimes what happens in faith. Um, it's in those moment that, uh, moments that God says, okay, we're going to start to forge your faith a little bit through some of the fires of questions, difficulties, um, things like that, that will open you up and create uh, space for questions, honest questions and dialogue and that type of thing. So you see here, these God moments, they break down the religious systems we often create for ourselves that sooner or later block us from continued questioning and wondering and thereby growing. But part of a forged in fire faith is to let those questions come and not be afraid of them because those are the things that will challenge us from our myopia a lot of times. And um, so these are key moments sometimes of growth for us. And, um, we have to be willing, I guess, to let some of those mental fortresses that we build up uh, have space to to think and question, and not and not be worried about the fact that you're you're wrestling with these things because 
I think that's just being honest uh, that you're wrestling with certain things. I'll give you an example of these, uh, some of these things here in a moment, but do you have any thoughts, questions? So where does deconstruction come from? Well, there was a French philosopher by the name of Jacques Derrida. He lived from 1930 to 2004 that really coined the term deconstruction. And he's an individual that uh, is talking a little bit about the nature of words and language. Um, and he is talking about a forged faith has to go on different journeys if it's going to endure for a lifetime and adjustments need to be made. So this French philosopher Derrida, uh, this is a pretty good description that he gives. Deconstruction theory stresses the limitedness or impossibility of ever arriving at a final interpretation of a text since words are signs pointing to signs. Now what he means by that is we are limited uh, by the usage of words. Well, why is that the case? Words are interpreted and defined in various ways, depending upon context. So we will not look at certain things the same way as someone in Europe or South Africa or China, because there's a whole different cultural element there. Not only culture, but what era do we live in? This is something that is so difficult for us to, to, um, to understand when it comes to the Bible. A lot of times Christians, in kind of a simplistic outlook, will say, the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. Well, okay, the, if the Bible, well, number one, you've heard me say this before, the Bible does not say anything. It just lies on a table until you begin to read it, and then you have to interpret it. But when you are interpreting it, you're going back thousands of years into a different era that has a completely different context and culture. And so to say that the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it, is to think that you're not doing any interpretation. If you read, you interpret. It's, it's, it's pretty simple. Now, it doesn't matter what it is. If you read, you're interpreting because you're taking words and you're putting meanings to them and trying to define what is being said through those. So each era that we look at in, in the Bible has kind of its own distinction. Uh, so Derrida will go on. And he will say that this deconstruction is kind of a set of practices that seek to answer two very important questions. Number one, what do words mean? And number two, uh, how do words mean? So what do they mean? Definition. But how do words mean? The different distinctive cultures give meaning to those words, even in their basic definitions. So he goes on and said, words always mean more than the definitions we want to give to them. They aren't standalone entities that represent one objective reality. And I think that's why when you have a Bible study that you throw a question out 
on a passage of scripture, everyone will come with that, uh, with that from their own angle. And you go, oh, they look at it through this lens. This person looks at it through that lens. Uh, that's natural. That's just who we are as human beings. So the Bible generates meaning upon meaning from one context and era to the next. So what it meant in the Old Testament under the Mosaic law does not necessarily mean the same thing to us. So the holiness code of Leviticus was very important to the Israelites as they began to define who they were as a people and all the sacrificial systems and the food laws, uh, you know, all these different things were important in the moment to to define uh, who they were. And, and yet, even as the Old Testament goes on, you see a movement away from a lot of those type of things because the times have changed, the culture has changed. And uh, so what happens a lot of times is even within the Bible, deconstruction is going on. And deconstruction means ideas continue to develop, even through the diversity of people and cultures, uh, even within the scriptures itself. So let me give to you an example of that. So it's a misconception, I think, to say that deconstruction is something that we do to the Bible. What we're noticing is it does it itself. For example, um, the beginning of Genesis has two creation stories. And as hard as you might want to line them up to say the same thing, they don't. Um, there are two different stories from two different perspectives, from two different eras that have been put together by the editors side by side. Here's a fascinating one that most of us will never notice because we don't read these books. But there's a different perspective on the kingship of the different kings of Israel in First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, compared to First and Second Chronicles. Why? Well, First and Second Chronicles is much, much later, uh, and they began to modify certain things uh, according to what had happened to them in in the his, in their history. Has it ever frustrated you that if you read through all four Gospels, you know, you know that the incident that is being talked about is the same from one gospel to the other, but it's presented in different ways. And a lot of the um, the details of it differ from one to another. And so the question is why? Well, different audiences uh, are receiving these uh, gospels. And the writer makes the choice to write to his audience as he tries to get his his um, his purpose accomplished as he writes the Gospels. So those are just a handful of different examples. Uh, we could go on. Why is it that God tells Jonah to go and preach to Nineveh so that the people will repent when in another prophet, Nahum, uh, God is saying, hey, they deserve what's coming upon them. There's kind of two different perspectives there, two different time frames. So this is what can 
confuse people or frustrate people. The longer that we look at the Bible, the longer the truth of what it is continues to come to the surface. And as I put here, and truth isn't sympathetic to our need for certainty. Just because we want a final foolproof answer on something, the Bible is not obligated to give it to us. So that's when we have to work through it. So when we are working with the Bible, we're working with human language. So this is very important, very important, okay? There is no one system of interpretation that can hold all the moving parts of the scriptures. Not one. It's been, it's, it's been tried 40,000 times in the Protestant leg of Christianity. Why? Because there's too much there. So here's an example. So do you remember when you used to make popcorn before you put it in the microwave? You used to take a bag of popcorn, put some oil at the bottom of the pan, put the kernels in, and you'd shake it. Well, usually you could, you could gauge how much kernels should go into the pan before the lid starts to pop off of it. One of the things that happens in, in the faith that we are pursuing is um, there's too many kernels that, and we try to keep the lid on it but it keeps on popping and the lid continues to pop off. So deconstruction of faith that is forged in fire is the willingness to let the, uh, is the willingness to take the lid off and let it spill over, just let it pop because there are things there that whether we want to recognize them or not, they're there. And eventually they will pop up and then begin to push that lid that we're trying to keep on top of it. Um, it'll push it off. So truth is always bigger than my understanding at any given time and place. So I look at things differently now than I did when I first became a Christian. And I'll look at things differently 10 years from now than I do, than I do here in 2023. That's just the nature of journey. It's just the nature of faith. But even though your perspectives change, there's one thing that does not change, and that is the God who does not change, the one that is there, the one that is um, coming alongside of us and helping us through those stages. So deconstruction is this ongoing process, and that's kind of the introductory lesson that I wanted to give to you. Uh, and But it is built within the limitations of language. And with that, uh, we need to realize that there will always be something that is pushing the lid on my system. It will continue to push it off. And that's okay. That's okay. All right. Just a couple more slides. So um, I just mentioned that the one thing that scripture has as a common thread is the unchanging nature of God. Now, there are times that we see the, a statement in the scripture that God repented, that he was sorry that he made mankind, that type of thing. But in general, there's this idea that God is uh, the uncreated um, divine essence that does not change. And there's a variety of different scriptures that you can look at. Uh, I, the Lord, do not change, um, you know, heaven and earth 
won't pass away, but my words will not pass away. Matthew 24, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Uh, Hebrews 13, A, Jesus the same yesterday, today, and forever. You have those type of scriptures that give to us the assurance that even if we don't fully understand God, we can rest in the fact that the things that we do understand about God will not change. He's not capricious. Uh, God is not going to be one that decides that he loves us one day and choose not to love us the next. So our thoughts are deconstructible, but God's nature is not deconstructible. And with that in mind, that gives to us not certainty about everything, but it does give us comfort. So you remember how I began in First Peter chapter 1? The other word that jumps out here in 1 Peter chapter 1 is hope. So let me uh, read this again. In 1 Peter chapter 1, <clears throat> Peter, the writer, says, Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So what is it that we really hold on to? What is it that will give to us comfort and hope? It's an inheritance, verse 4, that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So the one thing that we can be certain of is God's love, God's help, God's presence, all of these type of things we can rely upon. Other things will come and go, but what we find is in the process, when we meet up with those uh-oh moments, our faith will change. And as it changes, it is getting more refined and it's being forged through fire using that imagery to become something deeper and wider and better. Does that make sense to everyone? Okay, so God reveals himself in Jesus. That's one of the things that <clears throat> I think we have to sit upon uh, to continue to have the hope that we do. Our encounter with God is not only understood through words that are in the scripture, but through our experiences as well. So in Galatians 1, 15 and 16, Paul says, God was pleased to reveal his son to me. Remember John Wesley, one of his, um, his mantras was that his heart was strangely warmed. Um, one of the things that we rely heavily upon is our experiences with God. And even when we can't understand all the components of faith, we still have faith because of those experiences. And maybe that's what Jesus meant when he said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Um, the heart is a credible witness. It is something credible to rely upon. Uh, another philosopher, Blaise Pascal, said famously, the heart has its reasons of which reason knows nothing. He was a famous math, mathematician, um, but he knew the importance of the heart, not just the mind. So God is best revealed in Christ. We'll build on that here in the weeks ahead. 
And Christ on the cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is. And with that in mind, what we can do is say with the Apostle Paul in Galatians 6.14, God forbid that I should boast in anything or anybody except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because that is the clearest portrait of what God is really like, is his love upon the cross. So one more slide, and then we'll be done for tonight. So one of the things that we do in a life of faith is we build kind of a theological house. And it contains things that we know or believe about God. And it has it's a composite, really, of a lot of different things. Our faith tradition, uh, some of the things that have been handed down to us if we've been in church for a long time. But we also have to remember certain things as well, that the things that have been handed down to us uh, also have um, elements that we need to question at times. Um, so our theological house is has all these rooms in it. It has all this furniture of different things that we think or believe, but all homes also need some updating at times. And so as we continue to develop in our faith as it's forged through fire, then we can understand that, hey, some of the components in this room, some of them are worn out and I need to put that chair out on the curb. Some of them is I need to rearrange some of the things within that room. Um, and by rooms, I mean things that we believe. What do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about the church? What do you believe about salvation? What do you believe about uh uh, end time events, and the list could go on. We all kind of have these nooks and corners uh, that uh, we have in our in our thinking. But our house doesn't remain the same yesterday, today, and forever, but God does. And so we go on that journey with him. So the last line I want to give to you is this. Deconstruction is not demolition. It's very important to understand that but it's an updating of the various rooms that have somehow become dilapidated or they're not worthy of the God who has revealed himself in Christ. And so we have to reevaluate those things and go back and understand that wherever that leads us now, chances are in 10 years, we'll be redoing and rethinking even some of those things because life changes we change all that type of thing. So uh, some thoughts, questions on this introduction. I just wanted to thank you for bringing this up because it's not something that you talk about like that. Oh, that's, that's a thing <laughs> that most people go through. And yeah. I've certainly gone through some dark times where I've completely turned my back on God and, was like and it came from being hurt so yeah. i like how you brought that up and um and then you're like working your way back um you're right he doesn't change mm -hmm. and i i uh i was thinking of um when uh i was trying to think of the old testament book that um questioned his faith and it was habakkuk and he's like oh yeah mm -hmm. Habakkuk. yeah he has those yeah. questions yeah. like why are you letting evil people do this and 
why aren't you hearing me? And, yeah. you know, like all those questions you ask. And um, that's a very yeah. powerful book. It really it is. is. It is. I was just looking at because I couldn't remember yeah. which book it was. But um, well, he's complaining. Habakkuk is complaining that God won't do something about the evil that's going on. And God says, and <laughs> just saying this for everybody else in case they don't know that prophet. Uh, God says, I am going to do something. It's almost as if Habakkuk is going great. And then God goes on and says, I'm going to raise up the Babylonians and they're going to come in and they're going to take you captive. And it's like, <laughs> Habakkuk says, well, that's not what I wanted. No, <laughs> you know? that wasn't what I was thinking. <laughs> that's and that's another thing too. You never really, um, and, and I, I have come back to a different kind of faith than I had before. So I, I appreciate your, your teaching tonight. That was really good. We will continue to do that because mm -hmm. we are always changing as people. Yeah. The things yeah. that we will hold on to, or at least we need to hold on to, is that God is, is reliable, that God does not change. Even when I don't understand him, it's okay because I'll grow into that, you know? And I, I think, or hope, hopefully grow into that. Um, but you know, those are the things that we rely upon. But I have known, been having been in ministry for 35 years, that people want one final answer a lot of times on things. And, you know, well, well, which is right and the, uh, on this or that topic? And a lot of times I go, well, I don't know. There's a couple of different ways you can look at this. And that's okay. You know? <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> but it's the point is he's always going to accept us back again, mm -hmm. and he's not going anywhere. It's us that, and like like your kids, you know, they're gone for a while, and then you're of course you're always going to accept them back again. Like oh, yeah, they remember, you know. Well, but you bring up a very good uh, illustrative point, and that is our kids will have to grow into an understanding of why we looked at life the way we did as parents. That's not the way they're looking at life when they, <laughs> when they question you. So it's, you know, that's why teenage years are so tough, but even young adults and stuff, well, then they get married and have kids of their own or, you know, and then they go, Oh, I, I get it now. I under, I understand a little bit better why mom or dad had the perspective that they did. But they have to grow into it. You could tell them until you're blue in the face, but until that they walk through it themselves, it, the light bulb won't turn on. So, other thoughts, questions, comments? I think, you know, in the next session, give, you know, I think some more examples of that would be helpful. Yeah. Yep. Of the deconstruction. Yeah. I will do that. Uh, yeah. One of the things that we will do is kind of, uh, I just wanted to kind of introduce the topic tonight. We'll pick apart different elements of this. Um, I guess the thing to take away from maybe one or two things to take away from tonight is deconstruction of that is something that is not just a religious thing. It's something that happens with uh, all fields of knowledge. So do scientists look the same way at certain things today as they did a hundred years ago? Well, some things yes, some things no. And and so 
deconstruction, don't be afraid of it. It's just this idea that we're all going through changes and we're making adjustments. And, um, and, and that's fine. Uh, you know, God's not going to scold us for the fact that we have honest questions that we're asking about certain things. So I'll, I'll try to, I'll try my best, bud, to give some additional illustrations of that. So anybody else have any other thoughts tonight? Well, I hope you'll enjoy the topic. Um, I imagine we'll uh, go go th with this probably, uh, you know, about till about mid December. So um, we can do it even beyond that if we wanted to. But I I know the holidays will be upon us before we know it, and so we'll maybe take a break or for a week or two over the holidays from Wednesday night. But anyways, uh, if you don't have any other thoughts, I will. I'll, I'll close our time together and I wish you a real good week and uh, God bless all of all of you. Thanks for Thanks, being Anna. here. Thank, Thank you. you. Welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.